source of true delight whom I unseen adore unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more oh that I might love thee more you're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding dying. Scripture reading this morning is from uh, the book of Ruth, chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. It can be found on the Blue Pew Bible in front of you on page 222. Listen now to the word of God. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty... Go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed her And he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. This is the word of the Lord. Wish I could borrow that voice uh, for the rest of the time. <laughs> Let us pray. 
Gracious Lord, we pray that you will enable us to see the glory and mystery of your ways in our lives as we see something of your ways here in this passage. Lord, enable us to glorify your name by trusting you and rejoicing in you, laying hold of you in any and all circumstance. And Lord, growing in grace, growing in our trust, growing in our conformity to Christ. Turn our hearts, Lord, from trusting in anything else but God and His goodness as so evidenced in the death of Christ Himself. Lord, we rest in You. Pour out Your Spirit upon us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you're uh, visiting with us, this whole first chapter of this uh, book uncovers the great pain of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, who, after moving to Moab with her husband and two sons, and they're marrying two girls there, lost her husband and her two sons. They died in Moab. And much of the first chapter is her pouring out her pain before God, before others, expressing the deep travesty of soul, the bitterness that has faced her in her life. And we see also in that chapter little glimmers of hope. The great glorious statement of Ruth in the first chapter that I will not go back to Moab. I will not abandon you, Naomi. Your God will be my God and your people will be my people. And Where you go, I will go. And there's this hope. Even later in the chapter, Naomi expresses her bitterness, but we, we have the echo of Ruth's glorious trust in God. It kind of sets the tone for us. And even the very last phrases of the first chapter underscore that though it was Naomi and her family that left, the the writer, the narrator says, it was Ruth that came back. So suddenly Ruth is put center stage and we're made to think of her faith. We're made to think of her trust in God. Even as we're brought again to that by Uh, Boaz's statement in verse 12 that we just read, you've come to Israel, you've come uh, here to the God of Israel to take refuge under His wings. Isn't that a wonderful summary of her confession? Your God will be my God. In other words, from now on, I'll take refuge under the wings of Yahweh. And I want to stress that for us all this morning, that taking refuge under His wings. And I want to, especially this morning, our time is a bit shorter, but I want to underscore for you that you are under His wings when you don't even realize it, as we'll see Ruth was as well. First of all, we're going to look just briefly at an intriguing person that's introduced to us in the first verse. In fact, verses 1 through 3 form an introduction to this second chapter. Each chapter is like an act, act 1, act 2, act 3, act 4 in Ruth. And each act has several scenes. Well, there are three scenes in act 2. 
It's Ruth and Naomi in verses 1 through 3. And then the great part of the chapter is the interaction between Boaz and Ruth in the fields. And then you're back to Ruth and Naomi in the closing verses. So Ruth and Naomi on each end, the beginning, and then the denouement, the little conclusion, the what happened today section. And then the most of it, though, takes place in the fields between Ruth and Boaz. But before he gets to the action, he starts by saying, verse 1, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, he's going to be introduced, but what the writer is doing is putting us in the know about something. And it's interesting because Ruth meets Boaz, but she doesn't know who he is. But you know who he is. Hey, wait, this is a relative of Elimelech. And the original hearers would know he's responsible for her. He might do something for them. He might be the answer to Naomi's prayer in the first chapter that God would grant you rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. This man may be the answer to all of their problems. So we're set to thinking, I wonder who this Boaz, how he's going to play into things. Well, she doesn't know who he is. And then Naomi doesn't know that she's been with him all day. And it's very interesting when you get to the last of the chapter in verse 19... There's an extra long wait in verse 19 until the final word is Boaz. And you're kind of like, you've sometimes watched a movie or or TV show and and you're so caught up in it, you're saying, tell him, tell him, you know, because the, the writer has gotten you on edge and you're waiting for the person to understand what you know, but they don't understand it yet. And that happens in verse 19. And her mother said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Tell her, tell her. Blessed be the man who took notice of you because she came back with 30 plus pounds of grain, unheard of. And now notice how the writer says it. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Oh, finally, she tells. And only then do we have the resolution of the first verse, that there was a relative of her husband. Then it dawns on Naomi, you're with Boaz. He's a relative. He's a redeemer. And only then does Ruth understand who she had been with. She knew she was with a guy named Boaz, but she didn't know who he was. So see, the the whole chapter revolves around that final resolution of it sinking into both of them. What had happened that day? The glorious chance occurrence that uh, that, that took place that day. So we we start off then with this intriguing person, uh, Boaz. Then... An intense activity is introduced. Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him whose sight I shall find favor. Uh, Gleaning was a difficult, intense activity, but it was allowed. In fact, it was commanded in God's word. 
it was commanded, for instance, in Leviticus 23:22, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after you harvest. Necessarily, when they're gathering up and cutting the stalks and they leave it to be bound, the men would cut and the women would come up and bind the stalks. Much would be still left, or some would still be left. If they did their job well, very little would be left. And so then was left the very difficult job. It's been likened to picking up aluminum cans to try to make, you know, try to get enough food to eat along that level. Or a man working at minimum wage trying to support a family of four. That kind of thing is what gleaning was. Backbreaking work, working so hard in the hot sun all day, and then you would have very little to show for it. But notice she says, let me go to the field uh, and gather after him in whose sight I shall find favor. Though it was commanded, there's many warnings in uh, the first books of the Bible against abuse of this and mistreatment of uh, God's people. And then in the, uh, in, in the prophets, there, there were many condemnations. In fact, the condemnation is so severe in Isaiah and Amos, it indicates that the regular practice by that time was to ignore this justice due to the orphan and to the widow. And so in Isaiah, he says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Why? Because you, uh, your silver has become uh, dross, your best wine mixed with water. Why? Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. So, her concern that she would find favor with someone was a real concern. Many owners and reapers would mistreat gleaners and trick them or throw them out of their fields. Uh, and so whatever God's law said, a, a given owner might do whatever he wanted to do. So she's asking, she's hoping that she will glean behind someone who will be kind to her. So it was a hard thing, especially as a Moabite uh, woman, knowing she's in a foreign territory, all the more likely to be abused and mistreated. And we'll talk some about her faith next week. So you have this intriguing uh, person, Boaz, and then this uh, intense activity of gleaning. Uh, but what really takes uh, center stage in these first three verses is an interesting providence in verse 3. So she went out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now you understand why he introduced his name. There's this guy, Boaz, who was a relative. Uh, and, okay. And so he gets back to the story and says, then she just happened to come to the field of Boaz. And the interesting word, it's a, it's a, a, a verb and a subject, I mean a verb and a, and a noun put together. And it could be translated literally, the happenstance that happened to her was. The chance thing that chanced her. It's used, for instance, in 1 Samuel 6, 9, when the Philistines had had the ark for enough time that they were coming down with diseases because God was wreaking havoc among the Philistines when they had captured the ark of the covenant. And so they 
were sending it back. Uh, they consulted their own priests and diviners, and they decided that they needed to send it back on a cart with two milk cows with some different gold offerings and the like, and, uh, which I won't mention what they were. But anyway, um, you can read it for yourself. It makes for interesting reading. Uh, but there are children present, and I won't. Okay, Stephen, don't turn. Oh, he's not in here. Okay, he would turn there immediately. Um, so they send this, this cart and they say, if it goes back to, uh, if it goes back to Israel, we'll know that these diseases came upon us from God, from Yahweh. But if it turns the other way, we'll know it was just coincidence. Just a thing that happened, so to speak. And that's the way the description is. It just happened that she came into the field. And the writer, of course, is devoted to the truth that God ordains everything. He says in 1.6, God ended the famine. He says in chapter 4, God brought about the birth of the son of Ruth and Boaz. But so he's doing this for effect. It's like when you're describing something really wild that happened and you're describing what God did, and you said, and, you know, the way chance is, so-and-so happened, and everybody gets the, the point. No, it wasn't chance at all. It was God doing something. And so, uh, as Ferguson writing on this says, he wants us to sit up and take notice about the providence that's occurring. It's been said that this is one of the key statements in the book it's ironical. In, in effect, he's, he's screaming to us, look at the hand of God. Look what happened. This was Boaz. She didn't know where she was going. She was just gleaning. And guess what? She went into his field. Cool. You know, that's kind of the feel of the narrator at this point and why he puts it this way that it just happened that she came. It does underscore the fact that there was no intention on her part. She wasn't planning it. She didn't know who he was. She didn't know where she was. She's just gleaning. But that points out that though it was an accident, we might say, on her part, it was not on God's part. And the narrator sees God's hand in all of this. And the very, uh, Hall says, the very secularism of his expression is his way of stressing his conviction kind of underplaying for effect. So this is all completely directed by God. Then in verse 4, this word behold, hina, uh, it's one of those stop and take notice uh, words. For instance, in Genesis 24, 15, uh, Abraham had sent his servant uh, to find a wife among his relatives back in Nahor because he didn't want his son to Isaac to marry anybody there in Canaan. So the servant uh, travels all the way to Nahor. He gets in the city and he prays that the Lord would give him success and he would find this woman, a woman from among the uh, relatives of Abraham. And the way it reads in Genesis twenty four fifteen, before he had finished speaking, that is praying, behold, Hena. Guess who? <laughs> Rebecca shows up. And Rebecca is the granddaughter of Abraham's brother. And so the writer there is saying he's praying that he would see her. He hadn't even finished praying. There she was. And so uh, 
Bush has translated right here uh, in saying, verse 4, And wouldn't you know it, Boaz came from Bethlehem. So there's a hint of surprise here, of, of wonder, uh, to bring us in to see what was going on here. It just happened that he showed up. It just happened that she was... But look how God was orchestrating the whole thing. It's what we said from the beginning about this precious little book, that it's showing in the everyday things, the things we take for granted, the things that we think just happened... And they're being planned exactly like God wanted to bring His specific glorious purpose about in our lives. And it's being put before us by the Holy Spirit, not that we just sit back and look and say, look what God did way back then, but this is being declared to us, this is how God works among His people of whom you are. Take encouragement, take hope in what happens among God's people. What he did for Ruth, what he did for Boaz, what he's doing for Naomi in the midst of the most, uh, the, the most terrible pain is what he is doing for his people at all times, what he is working in our lives. And so we have got to admit to ourselves and call to mind at all times that everything in our life is a part of God's working in our life. You think these deaths that occurred, then God reverses the famine, then He brings them back. He has, uh, Ruth uh, is brought to trust in Yahweh. You, some people think, though the writer never mentions this, but some people are, think that perhaps uh Elimelech and Naomi were in sin to go to Moab, perhaps in sin to take Moabite women, which was forbidden in Deuteronomy. Though it's obvious that the writer is not concerned about that, doesn't even mention it. But that's at least a possibility that it would be regarded as wrong. And they were abandoning God's promise in the midst of the famine. But however, even then, he was going after this woman who maybe had never met an Israelite before, and she finds herself married to this man and he dies. She's brought to trust in Yahweh, and here she is gleaning and walks in the field of a man she's never even heard of. And God was working in every detail. And as we'll get to the end, this was how he helped form the line of David. And David was the forerunner, of course, of Christ, the Messiah. Here he is working out our salvation in the very details of everyday people's lives. And so we need to be gripped with the fact God is moving forward His redemptive plan in all of our lives. And He's doing things in our lives that we don't know might affect people years from now. I may be going through something that will enable me to bring comfort in a way in somebody's life that I couldn't have imagined five years from now because of what God is doing in my life. And so, just like she didn't know where God was leading her, no, neither do we. 
Neither do we know where God is leading us. And yet his hand is on us just, just as his hand was on her. And his hand has always been on us. And all things work together, even checkered past, even painful things that we've been through. God will catch it all up and use it in his glorious providence. He wasn't surprised and then find you and think, you know, I've never noticed you up to now, but I think I would like to have you as one of my children. That's not the way he works. He had you in mind before the world began, and he knew everything that you went through and all the pain and sin that occurred in your life as part of his plan to bring you to himself and make you finally a useful instrument in his hands. Every detail, every detail, Perhaps even the sin of Naomi and Elimelech in even going to Moab. We don't know. It doesn't say, but there's reason to at least that is a possibility. And what's interesting in this passage as we try to draw out some application, the narrator knows a lot more than the characters about what God is doing. We, we kind of are, are above. There are two views. It's like their view on, on ground level, and we've kind of got the binoculars looking at it from God's view. So we, with the narrator, can see more of what's happening. But the narrator only refers to God twice while they mention God like 20 times. And it underlines this point that Sinclair Ferguson brings out. He brilliantly underlines that while the presence of God is real to Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. They speak of God so often. His purposes remain hidden. I thought that was that's such a helpful way to look at it. We know His presence, and we feast upon Him, and we are devoted to Him, and we fellowship with Him, but we don't know His purposes, but we live in His presence. How can we know His individual purposes But we know that His footprints are running through our lives just as surely as His footprints were running through their lives. And I want to uh, leave with you this idea about grace. For Paul talked about in his pain and wanting this terrible uh, thorn, as he describes it, to be removed. And he prayed three times, which means he may have prayed about it Unlimited times. He he prayed about it completely and exhaustively. And God said no. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you in the midst of your pain. And one writer underscores that grace is really a personal relationship word. It's not just an abstract power that works in our life. It means a gracious relationship between God and us. And so when he says this to Paul, he says... My gracious relationship with you is sufficient. Isn't that a wonderful way to think about your life? His gracious relationship with me, that's sufficient for me. That's all I ask. Lord, just to have you, to know you, to taste you. That gracious relationship will never be removed. And so as we think nothing of our day-to-day encounters, you know, the so-called accidents of history, etc., God uses these ordinary events in your life and my life to advance His 
purposes. And one thing we learn in Ruth is His purpose is good. His purpose is good for you. His plans are for good and not for evil. And every event that He brings into your life, it is for good. And that's what I wanted to drive home is that He says in verse 12, Full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And you see that in verse 3, the refuge is already there, isn't it? He's already coming under the care of his wings as she wanders haplessly into Boaz's field. And you think, wow, the shadow of the wings over her life, she can't even see it. And I wonder how many times in your life and my life we despair of God's presence and His concern and His love for us. If we could see it from God's viewpoint, we'd say, oh, oh, the shadow of His wings is already over my life. I didn't see it. But it is. The shadow of His wings is over your life. And so when you're in that darkness and you're not able to see His hand or trace His design or interpret His purposes, you know who God is. And Isaiah 50.10 says, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on His God. And so you and I need to be delivered from, if we had a good day, God was with us today. God had regard for me today. Or we, we really read our circumstances as a measure of God's goodness, as a measure of God's love. And it's okay, of course, we should be overflowing in gratitude for all the gifts of God, even in the worst of circumstances. If we could see it, there are so many wonderful things to praise God for. But in the best of days and the worst of days, those are no indicators of whether God is for us or against us. He's for us as He's indicated through the death of His own Son. Paul argues that He will freely give us all things because He's given us Christ. And so there should be a conviction of His purpose for your life. It's based on His covenant faithfulness to you as He was covenantally faithful to Ruth who had come under His wings for refuge. And so we just put ourselves under the refuge of His wings, His unfailing, steadfast love. And realize that everything that occurs to you is one more scheme to do you good from God's standpoint. One more scheme to do you good. One more pathway in which He's going to open up goodness to you. One more instrument, one more set of circumstances to do you good. So that what the psalmist says in Psalm 23, 6 really is true, that goodness and mercy hounds you all day long. My parents have a new dog, a spaniel of some kind called Darby. My sister uh, bought it for them. Uh, And at first they were kind of horrified. They're in their uh, 80s and it's like, we don't need a dog, please, no, you know, that kind of thing. And now it's their whole life, you know. So every letter is about Darby and phone calls are about Darby and... And they, and they admit it's every all our conversations now are centered around this. And the thing is, they say it. He has a pattern of who he goes with at what time, whether at night or in morning or outside. But he will not be in a room by himself. You know, 
Never, never. He is tailing them wherever they go. There's the goodness and mercy of God. You cannot, cannot escape it. It's like those Verizon commercials, you know, where you walk out. And there's the crowd, you know. And wherever you go, you turn around. There's the crowd. I think of your mercies are new every morning. The multiple mercies of God, you walk out in the day, and if you could see them, you could see an array of His mercies. That's just for that day. Tomorrow you'll see, well, these are different people than yesterday. These are different... Mercies, mercies. Always, because why? He has given His own Son to die for sinners. If you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never trusted Him, things, God says, don't work in a general way for good for people. It's And this is a... This is something that all of us need to understand. In Romans 8, 28, when it says all things work together for good, that's in this context. For those who will finally be conformed to the image of Christ in the last day. In other words, everything works together to finally conform you to Christ. Now, if that's not the goal of your life, that you want to be with Christ, you want to be like Christ... You want to make Christ known no matter what the cost in your life. You, you want your life to have the aroma of Christ. You want other people to see Christ in you. You want to know how to trust Him and taste Him every day. And Christ is your life. Then all things will work together for good. If not, they won't. I don't mean as a punishment. I mean that... I mean that that's God's agenda. And we either submit to that agenda and the joy of of knowing Christ and being like Him and finally being resurrected into the same kind of body as Christ is resurrected and inheriting His kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. To that end, all things will work together for good. Even if you die at a young age, even if you lose a child, even if you've had a spouse that was unfaithful and left you and you thought you'd married somebody who would never do that, all things will work together for that good of Christ. All things. But if that is not your hope and your desire and your love, I have no promise and the Word of God has no promise. No promise at all for your life. Because all the promises are yes in Christ. In Christ. In Christ. Let us pray. Lord, how amazing that our whole lives would be governed by your gracious hand. Lord Jesus our whole lives be governed by the hand that was actually crucified for us? Could there be greater love, as you yourself said, than that a man lay down his life for his friend and you've laid down your life for us and now you're exalted above all rule and authority to govern all things for the sake of your people for whom you've died. 
nothing but good could come to us. Nothing. Nothing. So Paul says, all things are yours in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that nothing can be against us, but all things, because they are your servants, have become our servants. Even the worst of things, to promote your purpose, to make us like Christ, and to make us love Christ, and to make us instruments of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for we want to be able to say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. Lord, we confess, we confess sadly how often that has not been the case in our lives. How often we are down because that's not even on the horizon, it's not even on our agenda. Lord, may we honestly cry out to you as Naomi did and as the psalmists do and cry out to you over the awful pain and disfigurement and tragedy of this life. And yet, Lord, always cry out in trust, believing that you have every good purpose for your people in Christ Jesus. Bless us, Lord, to be an honor to your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through shades of night and chase my fears away won't you chase my fears away then shall my soul with rapture trace the wonders of the